y'all it's seba the southern fried witch and this is episode 17. today the temperature is somewhere around 60 but it is so gray outside y'all it is the way it gets in alabama winter and i have warned y'all y'all are going to get to follow me all the way through a year you're going to find that winter and i are not best friends However, there are some good things going on. Last night I had my family dinner, and as usual, there are extra young souls at the table. Inevitably, I am the oldest one in the room. You know what? I should start telling y'all what we have for dinner, because I always forget what I make, and this could end up being quite the record-keeping device. So, yeah. Gosh, I hope I remember to do this. Last night we had homemade Salisbury steak and Salisbury au jus and roasted honeyed carrots and baked mac and cheese. That always makes their eyes roll back a little bit. And arugula salad with pears and pecans and bacon. So we had a really happy crew. And after dinner, I was delighted that My extra kids, borrowed from other people's parents, were patient enough to let us put up our ornaments on the tree, and it's highly ritualized. I bring out the big box, and the boys and my husband and I go through and find all of our memories in there. Now, I really do need to get them in separate boxes, but it is so much fun to say, this is when you were two, or this is your first one. Do you remember this year? And they love it too. I tried to hurry them at one point because I kind of felt badly about my other son, Lynn, and my hopeful daughter-in-law-to-be without much to do. And I was promptly told by my boys to slow it down. This was part of what we had to be. We got it all up. Little trip down memory lane. I haven't heard from my daughter in many years, but we have a box of her ornaments, and I put them up myself. Always leads me to a good old-fashioned cry in the bathroom, but that's my girl, and I still love her desperately and always will. It became the family tree by the end of it, and our honored guest and extended family got to put all the pretty red balls all over it. But right at the beginning of the dinner, I did something that I've been doing too much. I critiqued something I cooked. I was of the mind that I could have gotten cheesier on my mac and cheese. And my son said, what have I told you, Mama? Don't do that. It's his contention that I put it in people's minds that there's something wrong with it. And apparently there was nothing wrong with it. It's all gone. So... It was absolutely wonderful, according to them. But it reminded me of something I've been studying on lately about cooking all together and the entirety of the process. And that was the end of that process, and I was kind of kicking it in the ass. 
and we can't do that. It is not conducive to magical thinking, so he is correct. That's what I want to talk about, though, today. I want to talk about how mindful cooking, deeply involved mindful cooking, is a lot like a ritual. May it be a little bit different every time there are certain things that we need to invest into that. This might not be for everyone if y'all are not into cooking or you don't care to do anything other than go to Mickey D's. But it's what I want to do today. So let's talk about it. It's cold, it's rainy, it's gross, and it's the time of year where comfort cooking and the smells coming out of a kitchen are absolutely the thing we need in our soul to help us get through a dark time. But it all starts with that deep involvement in every part of the process. You know, so many people have told me that I've got skills when it comes to this kitchen witchery stuff. And y'all know I don't really prefer braggarts, but I will say that I believe we should have some pride in what we can do well. And I think I'm a right fine cook. So in my estimation, missing even one moment of that is what can sometimes limp your cooking. Even for a piece of toast, I will slow down and I will feel the bread before I put it in. I will smell it and take in that deep yeast sweetness. I carve my butter very particularly and I always love the way it looks. Something about the color of butter that wears me out. And really enjoy the way it's melting across that piece as I spread it. These are the kinds of things that we forget to do. We're in a hurry. And being in a hurry is what's killing the magic of it. One of the people who really taught me how to enjoy the process was my dad. When we would go down there and stay with him... We'd stay for days on end at the end of every quarter break with my kids. And he would start around noon thinking out what we might want to do that evening. Making the list out loud, really processing what we would need. I've started to see that the planning of food is also critical if we can get around to it. If you want to know what it feels like all the way through, you need to try to find time to do this at least once. I've got herbs growing all over my yard, and I even have something called rose-scented thyme, and that is the most delightful thyme I've ever smelled. And when I have an idea about what I'm going to put on the table, and I need that, I tell the plant that as I'm picking it. It knows going in what it's for. I tell it, thank you. I smell it. I run my hands across all of it. By the time I get that thing in there, it's ready to go. And when things are really rough, I like to think out the medicinal values of things. But sometimes we don't have that kind of time, do we? The most amazing immersion into the process I've found engages literally all of your senses. You become enveloped in it. You become part of what's happening. When I slice an avocado, it's all about that feel and that texture, that firmness like cold butter, that gorgeous green color. When I melt butter, 
It's about the sight of it all as it starts to bubble and the sound of it. That little bit of pop, pop, sizzle, wafting through the air. When I shred herbs, it's that smell. It's that rosemary running through the room or fresh chopped chives across a blade and truly enjoying every single minutia of those steps. And then there's always the tasting of the salt and the sweetness and the balance of acidity the whole way through. It becomes an orchestra after a little while. I may be one of the very strange, but I like to sing to my food. Call me witchy, but as far as I'm concerned, that song is this reverberation of energy that is being transferred in and out of me to this food, back into the universe, back through. So I always have a particular song picked out for whatever I'm cooking. And that's why environment and space are so critical as well. Before I even begin, I've got to have that right. And somewhere in the whole thing, the world begins to melt away. I've noticed, in particular, that I will try to hold on to grief or anger or resentment sometimes. And I'll catch it because I'm not enjoying cooking my food. And then all of a sudden, if I let that just wash away, let go of all control and literally drown it all in the process, it becomes so much more like ritual. It becomes primary. And everything is working together, all at once. I mean, life is already so hard. I really don't want to miss the joy of something this simple. But the mindfulness is everything. It's in the planning. It's in staging the scene. It's in the jumping into the deep end of fat and salt and green and sweet and the smells and the sizzle and the steam. It's all this wonderland once you're all the way in. But there's also the product. I really don't like to think of it as such, but what comes out of that is literally a gift of so much. Your energy, the sun, rain, possibly a really pretty song, all of it has put in. And if you're a carnivore, a life. So what comes out of all of that That's really a celebratory moment, not something just to scarf down. And I know this is difficult to talk about because we live such busy lives, but I found myself thinking, well, I can just eat this real quick without a plate. But I've also found myself saving all my good plates for a particular holiday or the right company. And I've banned that kind of thinking in my life. The other day, I took down my favorite pewter plate, and I ate two perfect fresh eggs on it with a slice of avocado because I deserve to. You know, I absolutely love that movie, Julie and Julia. Julia Childs is one of my personal heroes. But there was one thing about the movie that really got to me, and it was the stress and the anxiety with which Julie was approaching the cooking. 
And I think that's because she was so invested in the product and some kind of an end game. And also she wasn't very sure of herself. But in most of those scenes, she was not really present in the cooking. But then I think about that movie Eat, Pray, Love, where Julia Roberts is sitting down on the floor with a very simply prepared meal and no TV and no cell phone and just her and finds a way to delight in the food, be present in that moment. And that's the kind of cooking I want to do. And that's the kind of eating I want to do. Otherwise, we're not allowing for that deep nourishment and even possibly healing that we need. There's a reason that people call some of this comfort food. But it's not just the end game that's part of the comfort. It's the smells. It's the warmth. Divorcing ourselves from that particular part of the energetic flow, we miss something. You know, it may be a jump here, but I think that's why our particular Christmas tree is so special. And our process may take us a while. We may have to remember everything that went on with each one of those ornaments. We may have to smell the Christmas tree three, four times while putting something on it. We may have to lament people that are gone who were part of that particular year that an ornament represents. And we may need to hang on and have a special day so we can all get back together and shove a bunch of candy canes up the ass of that Christmas tree because by the end of it, it looks covered. But it's a ritual. It's not just for the beauty of the tree. And when you approach the tree, you're approaching 33 years of a family. You know, it really is about that deep involvement in your life. It's the most magical thing I could suggest to anyone. I mean, I used to be an okay cook. I was pretty good. I followed recipes and I'm smart. So I was able to kind of ascertain what to do, what not to do. I've got fairly developed taste buds. Stuff came out pretty good. The stuff I do these days makes people cry and in a good way. And the only difference is that deep involvement. We already still know this somewhere deep inside of us. A plant that is sung to is going to be way happier. It's going to grow better. It's going to be greener. We've already proven that. So imagine what that flavor is going to be in your food. We know that dogs, for instance, respond way deeper when you look them in the eye than when you do not. You could walk past one and say they're a good boy all day long. But if you turn and pet their head and look deeply in their eyes and say, you're such a good boy, that deep engagement, that transfers that love so much more smoothly, so much more effectively to that animal. I would really love to do a study on the difference in eggs, not store-bought because they're complete and utter crap. I mean, eggs that are fresh between a chicken that was loved and petted and cooed to and one that was fairly ignored most of its life. I would love to do that study. I know that in my mind, Harriet's eggs are better than everybody else, but I'd love to do a blind look at that. 
Because if they are living organisms like a plant, you have to wonder, if they're loved more, do they produce better food? Well, according to one study that was done in 2011 by Cambridge University, the answer is yes. Well, I'm extrapolating a lot, but I want y'all to look that up. I'll put it over on my blog and link you to it. It's pretty cool. But the study said that once the chickens were removed from the farmyard, from the flock, if you will, from the basic duties of just trying to survive, and were fed really well and engaged with on a daily basis, they started to show individual personalities. And the study concluded, and this is pretty shocking, but only because we're egotistical asshats as humans, that chickens are indeed capable of empathy and even jealousy. You see, once they had that deep involvement, nourishment, if you will, what came out was something, well, fairly spectacular. You see, involvement, engagement, these things, we know they changed the game for almost everything on the planet. Sometimes negatively so, right? It depends on what kind of energy we're feeding a situation. But as a professor, and I am still a professor, we talk a whole lot about quality engagement and feedback rather than just phoning it in and saying you did okay, watch your commas, this is not an MLA format, you might want to look at this article. For a teacher to stop and say, at least on college level, this is a wonderful idea and it reminds me of something I've done in the past or something I've seen and the deeper implications are possibly thus, they know you actually took the time to consider that work. That's deep, rich engagement. What comes out of that, if not a more well-rounded student, at least a better and more well-rounded essay. But we are loath to give deep engagement to most things, unless we're angry, and then we give it every damn thing we got. And I don't blame anyone, including myself, for that. It's just not conducive to a magical life, though, y'all. And if it were easy, bat children, everybody would do it, and we know they don't. Now, I suppose this could get over into the realm of giving too much energy to certain things, and I don't mean that. We do need balance. We must be able to be you know, mind, body, soul, on an even keel, and not bleeding out in any area. I think I'm talking more about being truly alive in every situation. If I'm in grief, I'm going to allow that to spill over. I'm going to allow myself to swim there. I'm not going to fight that grief. Or if all I have in my home is one ripe tomato, I'm going to slice it slowly and savor every bit of it. I'm going to let myself swim in that flavor of that tomato. I never know what my last meal will be. I'm not so much sure how much I've taught all of my children this. I've attempted to. But I have one child in particular who will stop and gaze for a very long time at a Christmas tree he just put up. 
or make sure I get a third hug before he leaves the room, or delight that there's an orb weaver on the porch and really enjoy that moment. We don't know what our lives are going to be. We don't know when we have to leave. And I assume that if we were aware of it, we would spend so much more of ourselves in whatever we are living in for the day. This morning, I'm feeling fairly blue about losing my Gatsby. I'm having a hard time. I'm starting to heal, which almost pisses me off because in a lot of ways, I'm afraid that's pulling me away from him. Human nature. We have to learn these things about ourselves and sort of say that's all right. But I woke up and I'm a little bit behind at work and I definitely could clean the house a little bit today. But I recognized in myself the need for me to sink down into an overstuffed bed, watch an 80s movie, by the way. It was the movie Big. And eat chocolate for breakfast. I did something crazy. I didn't even check my email. I needed that. But see, I didn't see it as an escape. I was present in it. I enjoyed my fluffy comforter. My dogs were piled on top of me. I felt that warmth. I thought about it, thought about how much I love them. I'm watching this movie from my younger years and really enjoying the innocence of it all. I immersed myself in the moment so that even the sort of get away from it all kind of thing was a get into it all kind of thing. Y'all, I have even taught my husband into learning the power of tiny nipples on a really good piece of chocolate. It forces you to slow down and really dig in. And that's a luxury. Just the slow, nourishing consumption of something like that. Which I think is part of the whole process. Recently, I was able to procure a little capsule filler machine so that when I grind up my turmeric and machinacea, if I don't have time to make tea or I don't want to use a tincture, which I do a lot of because it's based in alcohol and I'm going to drive a car, or I'm just not feeling having a vodka-based tincture at 8 o'clock in the morning, I wanted to be able to take a capsule of the herbs I grow. And while doing my research on this, I was stunned to find out, and I shouldn't have been stunned because something in my body knows this, you're supposed to leave just a little bit of like turmeric or whatever that healing little thing is on the outside of the capsule, just a little touch, a little dusting, because when you put it in your mouth and the taste and the smell and all of that science that goes into this, will tell your body what's coming and how it's to be utilized. So you can see if your body needs that bit of a a roadmap so that it can utilize it properly and to its full advantage, that scarfing down our meals, unless we literally have no choice, is probably not the most holistic way to go. And it's most assuredly not the most magical. And I'm just not sure how we fracture the science we can accept away from obvious moments in our lives that we have not yet accepted. 
It seems to me that if we already know that deep involvement in the raising of our food brings happier plants and more nourishing meals, then how are we not making that leap that we need to be part of the cooking process? If we're going to be carnivores, how are we not clear that we do not need to be eating meat that could possibly come from a place where they never saw sunlight or were treated badly or in their last moments of life they felt fear? How is that nourishing our body? Bringing in all that trauma and fear. It can't possibly do so. Y'all remember, I'm an omnivore. I do eat meat, but I'm very careful about where it's sourced. And that's difficult because I'm poor. But I do the best I can. And it's not so damn altruistic. As I tell my kids, I don't want to eat hate chicken or fear cow. Doesn't seem like a natural way to go. That purist thing gets me in trouble all the time. And y'all, I am not a rabid, lunatic hippie, but I'm sure some of y'all might be shocked to know that I am trying to get to a place where I can replace my toilet with a composting toilet. Because no animal on the planet, other than human beings, adds water to their waste. It makes treatment a problem. It absolutely rapes and savages our water sources. It's expensive. And our own waste belongs in compost. It makes absolutely no sense to do anything otherwise. And these days, those things are awesome. You should check those out. Pretty fancy. But I don't care what y'all think. I would love to more deeply involve myself living on my land with the processes of that land. Does a bear shit in the woods? Hell yeah, it does. Have you seen the undergrowth down there? Gorgeous. It would be a deeper involvement for me. We are just so divorced, so torn from who we were supposed to be on this planet. And to me, cooking is sort of the analogy or, no, metaphor for all the rest of it. In essence, cooking is taking the product of earth and adding just the right mix of fire, water, and air to make magic, transform something into a new thing. It's alchemy. And alchemy is the craft. I believe it can be deployed or rather employed at every juncture and intersection of our lives. From taking just two more minutes to hug a human being and focusing upon who they are and how you really feel about that human, that's the same thing for me. Taking that motif and Spreading it across your life means a deep sinking into your place in it. An awareness that keeps us healthy, makes us whole. So even when I can't do anything else, I will walk into that kitchen and find a moment to conjure myself into that space and into all the things that it has touched 
so that everything becomes this Kairos slice of balance. Y'all, I think that us children of trauma have a very difficult time with this kind of concept. Now, all kids go through some kind of trauma in their lives. There's no way out of that. But some of us have gone through a little extra hell. One of the ways we learn to survive is to go numb. And that makes total sense. If we have to escape sexual abuse, emotional abuse, any kind of abuse from our childhood or even from our young life, going numb means that we will process that kind of pain and that depth of hurt at another date. And it will come up later and bubbles up when you feel safe. So that makes sense. The downside is that some of us get so comfortable in this position. Well, it's not really a position, is it? Comfortable in this reaction that it becomes almost part of our personality. When no one else is even around, this is who we are. We are numb. Something horrible happens. May it be tax issues or the death of a pet. Gosh, honestly, anything. And our reaction is to close off as much as possible to protect ourselves. You think of a tiny little soul, maybe a dog, because you know how much I love dogs, y'all. But you take a little dog that's been beaten and hit and anything that looks like anger or frustration or danger, even if there's no actual impact That animal will cover its eyes, it will shiver up, or it will bite back into the air that isn't even hurting it. These kinds of things are natural for us. And there are not a lot of people around who are going to help us heal from those kinds of things. The reason I bring this up is I have to wonder if, at least for myself, if I have not, let's say, incorporated a bit too tight of a suit of armor, So that when something like that happens, that armor kind of reverberates and tells me, pull in, go numb. Well, life is full of these moments. Kitty cat's dying and not enough money in the bank account to replace a tire. Or someone says something ugly about you behind your back. Full of these kind of moments. There's just no way out of them. And so... It's easy, at least for me, to stay in that suit of armor. I have to fight my way out of it. Well, let's be honest. I have to look around and make sure that the coast is fairly clear and that if I come out of that armor, I'm not going to get sliced in two. But what I reckon I'm saying is I think that armor can keep at least me, I don't know about you, from deeply engaging in my life. I think we all assume this is going to go on for a while, so we don't even come out. But here's the thing. What if it was going to go on for a while? What if, say, your rheumatoid arthritis was going to hurt so bad that there was nothing you could do to feel better for a while? Or what if the loss of someone or something was so bone deep, that you were fairly sure that wasn't going to heal for a while. 
What if the poverty had gotten to the place where your lights were going to be cut off? And that was the last day on earth. Now, maybe it's the rebel in me. Y'all remember, I am a Gen X. Or maybe it's the witch in me. Maybe it's just the bitch in me. But I'm not going to let it take my day. I go ahead and I grieve and I feel all that. But somewhere in that, I have to be present. I cannot go numb anymore. I'm really grateful for that armor. That armor got me through unbelievable pain as a child and as a young adult. But I have to wonder, what is its use now? Is it to keep me away from feeling those who actually do love me now? Or from feeling the sun on my face? Or from taking risk? Well, then I may have outgrown it. I want to be deeply engaged. I want to hug a tree. I want to notice things instead of walking past them thinking there'll be a tomorrow. I don't want this to be taken wrong because my son is the most, well, both of them are. But the one I'm thinking of is noble and kind and loves animals. And honestly, I don't know where the woman for this one is, but she would be a very lucky girl. And the day my Gatsby died, his biggest grief was he didn't spend enough time with him. It's that false, almost structural feeling, you know, that thing we kind of build around ourselves like the frame of a house, that there will be another day, and today is very busy or today is very tired, that gets in our way and bleeds all the magic out of our lives. We always say it, don't we? If I'd have known that was the last day, I would have hugged him more. Or I would have taken more pictures. The whole point isn't really all the memorabilia. For me, the point was, was I there? Not there and worrying about money. Not there and sitting resentful on a pack of bullshit about things that don't matter anymore. I'm just not present enough. But luckily... My kitchen witchery always brings me back home. And I don't reckon it has to be that. I know leather workers and woodworkers and crocheters, sewers. There are so many people who have an art form that brings them pleasure. But I have to wonder, what happens when we take art, that deep enjoyment that makes us more alive and more vibrant from that beautiful art? And say that it has to wait. It's a thing we'll get to. Lately what I've been trying to do. Is find art. In every segment of my life. Whether it be. In a color I love to see. Or the fires I'm starting in my home. Or the eyes of the sweetest dogs. In the entire world. Or the way my little Harriet. Is sitting on some eggs. I should have told y'all about that. Harriet is going to be a mama. Very inopportune time. It's cold outside. But she really wanted to. And I kept taking her eggs away from her. And she was all broody. And of course it was her that was broody. 
she's just extrapolating the bone marrow out alive, y'all. And I decided, well, let her have it. She brings me so much pleasure. I reckon I think we can learn a lot of things from nature about getting healthy and getting balanced and not wasting the time we got here. My husband has spent an exorbitant amount of time camping. In fact, he spent nine months doing it one time. And one of the things he brought back to my life and told me about this wonderful story is that if you get up early enough, you can actually watch the trees wake up. You know, their arms raise up and you can almost feel it in the micro wind. And when they go to sleep, they simmer down and their leaves and their arms lay back down. And all of it makes so much more sense to me. I mean, they are so much more present, are they not, than we can be. And while I love my beloved South for a lot of things, there's a whole list longer than my arm of things that I don't love. Let's not get into politics today, but y'all can imagine where I stand, I assume. Y'all are pretty smart. One of the things that I think that we really need to work on down here, it's, it's one of those catch-22s. Everyone around here asks you, how you doing, honey? How are y'all? Your mom and them. And quite honestly, they do not want to hear the answer. You are literally supposed to answer, well, I'm fine, and how are you? Uh, You know, you might want to mention if mama's in the hospital, but past that, they're just going to pray for you. Well, my little southern ass took a trip up north for a while when I was a teenager. My mother drug me up there. And I still have a little soft spot in my heart. Man, I'm a contradiction, aren't I? For New Jersey. (laughs) And I lived up there from, I think, 14 until 17. May not even been that long. And I remember when you ask people up there how they're doing, um... They will downright tell your ass how they're doing. It was quite a shock to suddenly hear about people in jail or their mama really sick or they were depressed that day. It was cracking my world open. Down here, people don't really want to know how you're doing, honey. It's a deflection. It's passive aggression at its worst. Most of the time, they don't want to hear anything. I have been messing with their heads lately, though. I get asked, how you doing? And if I'm depressed, I say, well, I'm depressed. How are you? Or if they caught me on a fairly good day, I'll say, well, menopause is about lifted. I'm not as crazy as a batshit bitch anymore. And I'm doing all right. Gained a couple of pounds. How you doing? But I'll tell y'all what. You ask a chicken or a dog how they're doing, you're going to get a straight answer. If they're sad, they're going to howl. If they're mad, they're going to growl. If they're happy and they're a chicken, they're going to cluck. They're present. While their lives may be more short and brutal, they're so much more present, so much more deeply engaged in every moment than we could ever be. So let me tell y'all how I am. No, you didn't ask, but hey, you're listening, right? I'm sad. My house feels empty. I still have my babies, 
In the house right now, I have Jax. He weighs 80 pounds, um, and he was definitely a safe dog, a rescue. And Miss Maggie, who I saved from a dog fighting ring situation, and they're both cuddled up on the couch. And I have my Rasputin, and he is the only dog I've ever bought, but I bought him from a bad breeder who was going to put him down. And he's being released from surgery right now. He had a bad tooth and had to have it extracted. So he's coming home in a little bit and he's going to get to sleep with mama. And he's nine. And I have Miss Khaki and she's 15 years old. And I was teaching one day. A student of mine was going to be deployed and he didn't know what to do. He was fostering her. So I gave her to my son And my son was a bit of a goofball back then and still working through his spit and vinegar. She had to come live with me and got attached to the dogs around here. So she's still here. And she's old and has gray hair. And she's a hound dog. And they're all in the house right now. And then outside I have my two miniature dwarf Aussies who are protecting the chickens. And they have a heated doghouse. And I have my Grindle, the kitty cat, laying underneath the Christmas tree right now. And y'all be very careful what you name your cats because he definitely is a Grindle. But just like Grindle's monstrous mama, I love him. And I have Tichaba and Waylon, my black kitties, and they're outside in their heated habitat. And these are all my babies. And my Gatsby is not here. He's outside under a mulberry tree with a candle lit. So I'm hurting. That's how I am. I'm hurting a little bit. But I'm also very aware of who I have left. And I'm very aware of the friends I have left. And I'm very aware of my beautiful garden and my sweet old country home. The two children who will still love me and come talk to me. And the husband who I put up with and he puts up with me. And I love him. And I'm aware of y'all. Being present. Well, honey, sometimes it can, you know, suck a dick. It really can. Doesn't that sound funny coming out of a southern mouth? But it really can. And it's worth it. Because if I put that armor on and I let myself go numb, I could miss something. Now, life is too short for that, isn't it? I think we have two choices in our lives, and that's to just get through or to become real. And you know what I mean by real. Don't hide a damn thing about yourself. Let it explode everywhere. Let it shine right out your eyes and your ears, honey. And that's a very difficult and scary place to be. But it's better than that armor You know, armor's a cold thing, and it's kind of bulky, and you can't really run or have sex. Well, I reckon you could. It'd be weird. I think it's very useful for emergencies. I think we also need to know the day to take it off. Put it on a stand. Go back to feeling and hurting and loving and tasting, bleeding, raging, I know y'all are sick of this analogy, but 
We really do have to get busy living or get busy dying. Well, between my doggy dying last week and my little tiny feller ended up in surgery today and a mishap with our chimney that I have to address. We have to get a new pipe. I'm broke as hell. While other people are probably going to go out tonight and have a nice dinner, I can't do that. It's not going to happen. But y'all know what I do have? My son went fishing a couple of weeks ago and he caught mama a bunch of catfish and cleaned them just right perfect for me. And they're in the deep freeze. And I have green beans I grew. I have all kinds of goodies and cans and jars. I'm going to find a way. It's what we do. Put a little Nina Simone on the radio and put a little sugar in my bowl. And that's exactly how I have to be present tonight. I'm not sure, am I, that I've got that much more time. What if the last night on earth all I did was bitch? That's not okay. So as we slide toward the very last cold, longest night of the entire year, which for us, I believe, is December 21st, at around 10.19, I'd have to go double check that, I'm going to try very hard to immerse myself in things like rest and warmth against the cold. But that's not all I'm going to do. One of the things I like to do is bundle up really well and stand outside in that cold and accept it as much as possible. Just let it happen. I mean, after all, we got a big war ahead, right? Between the Holly King and the Oak King. What I love most about that is I always know who's going to win. I hope y'all are warm. I hope y'all are safe. I hope y'all are comforted in some way. As for me, I have cookies to go make and all kinds of yummy preparations for Yule. You know, I've noticed that my students are not listening to my podcast for about a week or two until it's already done. So I can share with y'all a secret that they're going to laugh at later. And that is, I'm making them all turmeric capsules for Christmas. And echinacea capsules and all kinds of yummy little healing herbs. I always make them tea, but this year they're going to get a little extra. I want them to be loved right up on that night. We don't believe in buying anything for your presents to give to each other. Rather, we like to make them for each other. So they mean ever so much more. And we have to let ourselves fall deeply into the experience of the whole thing. So, that's enough. I'll talk to you next week and it will be Yulish. And can't wait to have a little conversation about that oak and holly king. Be nice to each other. Don't forget, eat your chocolate and tiny little nibbles. Blessed be y'all. Y'all, I was about to put this whole thing up as is, but I realized as the author of this podcast, I could do anything I want. And as I was walking away from it, I kept thinking to myself, I think what I was trying to say is we need to witchify every damn thing in our lives. There is magic in everything. I don't know if y'all can hear, but it's pouring rain outside. Ten minutes before publication, I just stopped and thought, I didn't relish it enough. So, pay attention. Really sink into these moments. 
There's magic in pain. There's magic in the cold. And there's magic in realizing that we don't have a lot of time. To me, there isn't any space in my life that I cannot witchify. I guess I need a t-shirt that says that. Would y'all like that? Would y'all like me to make a t-shirt like that with a logo on it? Well, if so, could you please, all you introverts that are afraid to write to me, could y'all please write me an email and say so? I've got about five regular writers that I see in my Gmail all the time, and I would just be tickled pink to see others. If you don't worry, I will not call you out on the air unless you tell me it's okay. Y'all gonna have to trust me on that one. I do have good Southern manners. Let's do try a little bit harder to witchify our lives. And that is what immersion in a moment is. Love y'all. Y'all have been listening to the Southern Fried Witch Podcast. Come back around next week for a little bit more magic from the Deep South.